Hello, hello, hello. Hello?
in case you're wondering why we aren't starting. A very warm welcome to everyone who made uh, his or her way tonight, to this evening to us here at IT University in Copenhagen, as well as to all the people who are uh, on the streaming. We are a bit late, we are waiting for one of the speakers, but I think we should start anyway. Um, we here at the European Blockchain Center at IT University, we are organizing all kinds of different events around blockchain, uh, blockchain for and, and governance aspects, blockchain in the context of blockchain for good, uh, ethical aspects of blockchain. And tonight we are talking about blockchain and legal implications and perspectives from an IP law point of view. We are really excited and blessed to have fantastic speakers tonight who are going to talk about not just kind of how legal implications or law in general is affecting and should be agnostic to technology, but of course also how technology is helping to enforce law and regulation in our case, of course, we talk about blockchain. The last time I, I was kind of in, in a more legal context talking about blockchain was, I think, in 2017 in Luxembourg at the European Court of Justice before GDPR was actually effective. And there were around 400 lawyers and they wanted to know about blockchain. And uh, I did a little pitch and they said afterwards, oh, that needs to change. This immutability needs to change. 
and I said, no, that is a constituting element of blockchain. Uh, that's not going to change because otherwise the whole idea of blockchain is out of the window. Uh, the answer was technology is always changing and that has to change because it's not in compliance with GDPR. And I said, well, law is also man-made or human-made and it's also continuously changing. Oh, no, we're not changing GDPR. So obviously that tension between legal implications and, and legal considerations and technology is an ongoing battle. And I'm super excited that we have here tonight uh, speakers uh, like Mark Kaufmann from Washington, from Ryman Law Firm, uh, Martin von Haller-Grönbeck, uh, partner at Bird and Bird here in Copenhagen. We also have Hans Broersen, he is a lawyer from Berlin. And uh, online with us tonight will be Nicolas Howe from uh, the European Intellectual Property Office in Alicante. So truly we have an international perspective from different angles uh, looking on IP, law, blockchain. And uh, with no further delay and you, I would like to ask Mark Kaufmann to come forward to uh, start the presentations. Afterwards, uh, the moderation will be taken over by Hans Broersen and uh, there will be time for questions, I'm assuming, uh, of course, here from the audience, uh, but maybe we have also a chance to pick up some questions from the people participating online. Mark, the screen is yours. Is that better? Is the mic on? I just need to speak into it better, right? I'm trying to, I uh, am not used to using a Mac. How do I go to slide? You don't have a little picture like they do on, okay, there you go, it is there. Thank you so much, okay. Now I promise I can use the slide deck. We're good. Uh, hello, <laughs> my name is Mark Kaufman. I'm with the law firm of Ramon PC, and I have to, I have to correct you a little bit, Roman, it's Ramon. And I, I love to tell Ramon, does anybody speak Hebrew? No? I can't believe it. Ramon means pomegranate in Hebrew. I don't know, I don't know what the Danish word is for pomegranate, but which is in the Middle East apparently a sign of peace and prosperity and all things good. And so that's why we are Ramon PC and we're, we're an international law firm and I'm based in Washington, D.C., as Roman mentioned, and I'm a patent attorney. I've done a lot of work uh, with respect to patents relating to fintech and computer software more generally, and over the last several years to blockchain technology. And uh, I identified about eight or nine years ago that there were a few patents related to blockchain trickling in, and as you'll see, we now have uh, many, many patents uh, related to blockchain technology. Now I'm going to tell you a little bit about uh, what a patent is, and uh, then we'll talk about the actual patent landscape, you know, who, who's patenting what and, and where they're patenting it. Does, does anybody here have any experience with patents, been an inventor or no? Oh, you're all so fortunate. No. Well, uh, then let me ask, I'm take another poll. Uh, opinions on patents. Good or bad? Is it region good? Oh, really? Oh, you and you must not be software developers, because well, anyway, who who thinks patents are bad? Well, you're wrong. No, <laughs> no, patent patents can somebody way in the back, uh, and and patents can be patents can definitely encourage innovation. I'll talk about that a little bit. 
uh, but they can be used to hinder innovation. I'm going to talk more about that today and how we can avoid that. And then one thing just popped in my mind that I find very humorous, and I have to tell everybody, or else you'll wonder why I'm laughing. But if anybody use Microsoft Teams, have you ever seen the the view they have where you can put everybody in a in like a st in stadium seating? That's what, you guys look just like that, like your <laughs> heads popping up out of the, anyway, I'm sorry. Uh, okay, so so let's get into it because I know I only have 20 minutes. So uh, or we can click here. What is a patent? I want to make sure I have the right thing up. What is a patent? So a patent is is a legal limited right to exclude others from making or using your invention uh, in exchange for a full disclosure of your invention. In order to file a patent application, you have to provide a full disclosure of whatever the invention is that you want to protect. And, and the idea being that we encourage people to teach the world how to make their invention, and we give them a, a limited right to exclude, limited in time, usually about 20 years, to exclude others. But then once the patent expires, the, the work becomes uh, part of the public domain. And, and that's why patents can very much influence uh, or very much uh, uh, facilitate innovation, because we reward people for innovating and for telling everybody about how they innovated. Uh, Patents, you have to show essentially that whatever your innovation is, that it's new and it's different. Uh, I, I won't get into, since nobody has experience here with patents, I won't get too much into it other than you have to show that it's useful and different from whatever else has been in the prior art. You, of course, can't patent somebody something that, that is already known by the public. So, you know, what can be protected? Essentially machines, processes, articles of manufacture. Uh, some, some different words are used in various countries. Those are the words that the U.S. laws use. But, but it really means, you know, it can be a computer system. It can be uh, a, a, uh, a compressor or a machine, other type of machine, uh, or a process. For a process for baking cake could be patented. Uh, and software can be... Uh, a process can be embodied in software. So uh, we often protect software software with as a machine, meaning the, the computer architecture, and as a method, the process that's accomplished by the, the computer architecture. So it's important to know that there are two parts of a patent. One part of a patent is that, that disclosure I spoke of. Where, where you, it's essentially a technical disclosure. If you've ever read one, they're a little bit cryptic because of some of the legalese language that patent attorneys like to use. Uh, but essentially, it's a, a technical paper, similar to a white paper, that describes the entire invention. And, and that's what becomes part of the public domain once the patent expires. But the, the second part of a patent are what are called claims. And if you've ever seen a patent, at the end of a patent, it says, here are the claims, or what is claimed, and there are these paragraphs, and I'll show you one of them, that vaguely resemble grammatically correct English or, or German or whatever language they're in uh, that, that define the invention. There's sort of an outline of the invention in a legally illegalized format. And here's the, the top half of a cover page of a patent for, uh, for one of my clients. This happens to be a United States patent. But they, they look very similar, whether it's from the EPO uh, or 
an international PCT application or any other uh, of the larger patent offices throughout the world. Uh, and there, uh, what I don't show you here are the drawings and the rest of the disclosure that explains uh, this patent, which is for a method and apparatus, sorry, method, apparatus, and computer-readable medium for transaction management spanning multiple heterogeneous computing networks. Now, I, I wrote this, and I still can't remember that. This is essentially a patent directed to a method for cross-chain cross transactions from one blockchain protocol to another. And, it, and it, this could be a, a very groundbreaking patent, in fact, we think. Uh, so here is uh, one of the claims. I, I've edited out uh, some of the words just because otherwise we couldn't fit it all on one screen. But it gives you an idea. I just want to show you what a claim looks like. Again, this is what defines what the invention really is. And I have to read this a bit. But this is the method, as we said, for interfacing heterogeneous computing networks to accomplish a cross-network transaction, et cetera, et cetera. And it's a series of steps of uh, you know, receiving a transaction that specifies a, a, a origin and a destination, an origin wallet, and if you know blockchain terminology, that's an address on the blockchain, and a destination wallet, uh, another address, which are on different blockchains. And then it traverses a graph structure which defines an interface between the, the blockchains and creates multiple transactions based upon that graph structure that when, when uh, accomplished consecutively, all end up creating the desired cross-chain transaction. But and I just wanted to see kind of the, the wording of what a patent looks like. This is what defines the protected invention. You may see patents that are titled, you know, uh, method for displaying something on a computer screen. You know, that, that doesn't mean they've patented a method for displaying something on a computer screen. They, there are claims that define a specific method for displaying something on a computer screen, for example. So, so that's, you, you now know the uh, anatomy of a patent. Uh, probably know more about patents than 99.9% .9 of the people in this world. So you're, you're patent experts. Congratulations. Uh, so we I talked about patents giving you a limited right to exclude others. That, you know, somebody who is practicing your patent, that's called infringement. And how do we determine infringement? And I say, and, and I say that this is jurisdictionally normalized because the laws, of course, are different in, uh, in the US, in Germany, in Japan, in China. Every country has their own laws. But essentially, uh, it, it's, it's, every country is uh, similar in this manner. To infringe a patent, you need to practice each and every element of the claim. So, you know, going back to this, this claim here, if to, in order to be an infringer, you would have to, you know, receive the information, traverse the graph, generate the transactions and control execution, yada, 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 exactly as written here. If you don't do any one of those steps, you don't infringe this patent. So you can imagine it becomes very complicated. Uh, and and there, there is there's infringement can be by one party, infringement, I'm, I'm gonna gloss over some of this legal stuff. It can be by multiple parties acting uh, in concert with one another, where you know one party performs one step, one performs the other, one performs the, the next step. 
Uh, but that's what infringement is. Now, how do we determine that? You know, uh, it, it, infringement to one person may not look like infringement to another person. And, and so infringement is determined uh, in, in virtually every jurisdiction through a lengthy and expensive uh, court, you know, legal process in court. I, in the U.S., it is particularly lengthy and expensive. Uh, maybe the other end of the spectrum is probably Germany has a very, uh, what I think is a very efficient uh, and I still think effective uh, mechanism for determining infringement of patents. Uh, but in the U.S., in fact, in the U.S., uh, you're entitled to a trial by jury for patent infringement. So they'll pick, they'll pick a bunch of people, you know, from Texas, for example, who know nothing about the technology. And in fact, the, the lawyers will try to get people that know nothing about the technology. I've been, I've, uh, in, in my many years, I've been called to jury duty several times and not, never for a patent case, but uh, every time uh, they say, what do you do? I say, I'm a lawyer. What did you do before your lawyer? I'm an engineer. They said, see you later. Uh, they, they, they don't want lawyers. They don't want engineers. They don't want computer programmers. They, they want people who know nothing about the technology. And, and it ends up being very confusing and very lengthy. Uh, in the U.S., a typical patent case can cost, you know, 2 to $10 million to defend. So, or, or to prosecute that, for that matter. If you're a patent owner uh, and, and somebody's infringing your patent, it may cost you two to $10 million to show that. Now, there, there are ways of financing that and there are lawyers who will do that on a contingency basis where they, t you know, they don't charge you anything up front and they take a piece of any of, any of the damages that you get. But it's, it's difficult. You don't just waive your patent and say stop, you know. Uh, and the remedies for patent infringement include an injunction, meaning you can make them stop. A court will make them stop, and uh, or damages, you know, money damages, uh, usually based on whatever profits you the the infringer received from the invention. But the point is, it's very difficult to demonstrate infringement uh, or to demonstrate non-infringement if you are on the other end of a patent, and we'll talk about that a bit too. Uh, Anybody know anything about quantum mechanics or particularly quantum computing? Come on. Yeah, okay. So, you know, and I, I'm learning, uh, I know a little bit about quantum computing. I'm just learning. Uh, and uh, yeah, what's his name? I, I, I like the saying, Richard Feynman, I think is his name. He's a quantum physicist. And he says, if you think you understand quantum mechanics, then you don't understand quantum mechanics. And so I, I feel better about that if he because I don't understand quantum mechanics. But I'm, I'm learning a lot about quantum computing uh, for another project I'm working on. And uh, as many of you will know, if you've taken physics, uh, you may recall that, that uh, quantum mechanics you know, relies on on the state of a, the probability of a state of particles and, and quantum computing is based upon these probabilities as opposed to you know ones and zeros on and off bits qubits which are the bits of quantum computing uh, have have can have a probability of being either on and off on or off and they can be either of those or both based upon probabilities and these probabilities are leveraged 
to do tremendous computing tasks, potentially. I'm not sure anybody's actually built an effective quantum computer yet, but it's a lot of promise. Anyway, enough about quantum computing. Uh, I say that patents are the qubits of, of, uh, of uh, intellectual, of property rights, because there's so much uncertainty. You, ha you can have a patent that is 60% infringed, 40% non-infringed, you know, and until some court and lengthy process figures it out, uh, we don't really know. And the same thing for whether a patent's valid. There's the, the point of this slide is there's tremendous uncertainty in patents. And at best, you can get sort of probabilities. If you go to a lawyer and say, I think somebody's infringing my patent, they'll say, I think you're probably right. You know, and, and you say, oh, you know, how much? 85%? A lawyer will probably tell you more than half or less than half. That's about the best you can do. A uh, lot of uncertainty. So now you know a ton about patents, right? But let's talk about the uh, patent landscape relating to blockchain technology. Uh, the, the overview is that, uh, and I, I was just uh, talking to Roman. I think Roman was at, at a uh, conference where I made a similar presentation five, six years ago. And I think there were 4,000 patent families. You know, these are groups of patents to a single invention. 4,000 families throughout the, the world. Uh, now you see the number is, is 49,000? Yes, over 49,000. And you can see by the profile there, uh, in the last 10 years, the increase, sort of exponential increase in the number of patents being filed. Uh, and what's interesting now, uh, among other things, is that there are now 20 of th these patent families that are currently in litigation. Now that is, that's an, you know, litigation meaning for infringement. That's an infinitesimal small number compared to, you know, uh, semiconductor fabrication or mobile handsets, you know, they, they got tens of thousands of patent litigations going on all over the world all the time. So, you know, 20, uh, that's not very many. But uh, 18 months ago, the number was zero. Six months ago, the number was two. And, and we're just beginning to see two things. Patents are beginning to, to be granted based upon this new blockchain technology. It takes about three years to get a patent granted. So we're starting to see a lot of them granted. And we're starting to see commercial activity based on blockchain technology. Uh, and until, until the last couple of years, there really was very little commercial activity based upon blockchain technology because people don't sue you for patent infringement if you're not making any money because then you, then you, won't, you can't pay them any money. It's only when you're successful that you get sued for patent infringement. And that's something we always tell our clients and they say, this is really awful, I'm getting sued, it's gonna cost me $4 million. They say, well, it's a recognition of your, your strength in the marketplace, congratulations. Uh, and they don't, they don't buy that. Uh, anyway, so, oh, and one more thing I wanna mention, the sort of orangish, oh, I didn't, I, oops, sorry. I haven't been showing you the right slide. I've been talking about this slide where you can see the increase in filings. Okay, these are, uh, filings by patent families, meaning if you file in the EPO and then you file in the US and you file in China, all the same uh, patents, that's one family. Uh, EPO is European Patent Office. There's actually a, a single application you could file that can get you a patent in uh, most of the EU countries and a lot more, uh, including Switzerland, UK still, 
uh, all by one patent application. That's the European Patent Office. This, uh, I'm not good with colors, but I think that's orange-ish box, is sort of the, again, uh, more uncertainty. Patents publish 18 months after they're filed. So for 18 months, we don't know what's going on. So the, the, the numbers in those boxes are not complete numbers. Uh, because, uh, and, and the reason there are some in 2022 is because there are some reasons that patents publish early, occasionally. We won't get into that, but you, know, you see a smidgen of published in 2022 already. But it really be it really be 18 months after the year after the end of a year before we know all the patents that were filed in that year. So I have every reason to expect that this curve of this increasing curve will continue through. 2021, 2020 has continued through 2021 and 2022 and beyond. So where are patents being filed? The uh, darker blue is it means more patents. Lighter blue, less patents. Yeah, so you see the density, China, uh, the US, uh, throughout, throughout Europe uh, and uh, South America, Australia, a lot of patents are filed. Really, what I call all the usual suspects, the, the big markets. Uh, China, particularly in the last couple of years, been a ton of filings coming out of China. And this is showing where they're filed originally. Where they're filed originally is usually the country of origin, not always, but usually is. We look at the filers, top filers. Uh, good, I think you can see that. I. I put a lot on there, there's 30 on there, uh, and I hope I didn't make it too small. You will notice right away, well, what do you notice, anybody? What do a lot of those companies have in common? Yes, it's a lot of Chinese companies, yeah, very good. You win the prize, Roman will give it to you later. It's a very expensive prize. I'm just kidding, there's no prize, that was a lie. Uh, yeah, a lot of Chinese companies, and they've been filing a ton of patents they being large companies in China, mostly large companies in China. And that is, uh, and, and patent activity is certainly an indicator of innovation. No doubt about it. It's one of the better indicators we have. So it, it would indicate that there is a lot of blockchain, and it, by the way, in case I wasn't clear, this is all directly blockchain related patents and decentralized technology. Yes. Right, right. Yeah, and if you look down the list further, or if we had looked at this a year and a half ago before these, this Chinese dominance, uh, yeah, there are banks, there are uh, legacy technology companies like Microsoft and Amazon, and, and there are uh, a lot of small fintech startups, very diverse group. Uh, Walmart is on there somewhere, big, these large uh, uh, retailers. So, you know, right, everybody's using, looking into blockchain technology. We're seeing a lot of different groups. Uh, where was I? So, yeah, so, but China, I would think to some extent, the numbers do not really indicate the, the great level. I, I don't think the innovation is as uh, advanced there over the U.S. or or Germany, or you know, all the other industrialized nations, as you would think based upon purely the numbers. And I, and I say that because uh, 
Well, anecdotally, I've seen a lot of the patents, and they're just not that strong. They're incremental patents. Uh, also, China, as part of the, the uh, Silk Roads Initiative, actually gives incentives to companies to file patent applications. And, and many different kind of incentives, including cash, you know, cash incentives to file patent applications in emerging technologies. And so where a U.S. company might file one, I, I'm surmising that a Chinese company might say, oh, let's break that into five different applications and get five, you know, five rewards. Uh, so I, I think there's a lot of that going on. And in fact, when you, there are several ways of, there are several indicators of quality of patents. And really the only true indicator is the legal process that we talked about. And if you get through the legal process and your patent is infringed, then it's very valuable. Uh, and, and that's the only way to really tell the value of patents. But there are a lot of indicators. Yes, sir. Well, among other things, they get cash incentives they, they, from the government. I'm sorry. Yeah, from the – oh, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. It's from the government. The government actually said at the end of the year, if you file 100 patents, you get, you know, 80 million yen or whatever it is. Am I running over time? Oh, I'm sorry. question was, what are the incentives in China? And I, I don't know exactly what, but, but it, is, it is a cash incentive to file patent applications. And the more you file, the more cash you get back, or it might be a tax deduction or something like that. But uh, I really don't know the answer to that entirely. Uh, but there are several ways of looking at quality. And, the, and they're all they're all necessary to get really get an idea of quality. But the one that I think is the best indicator of quality are, is what we call citation analysis. And this is essentially similar to the way Google does PageRank. Uh, when you file a patent application, you tell the patent office about all the other relevant prior art. And in fact, in the US, you have an obligation to do that. So anybody who files in the U.S. must give a list of all the prior art and ex explanation of why it's relevant. You almost have to do the patent, patent office's job for them. And those are called citations. So if I cite to other patents, that means I think it's relevant. I think it's important. And statistically, if we look at all those citations by numbers, it starts to give us an idea. Hey, everybody's looking at this patent. It must be very foundational. must be very valuable. You know, nobody looked at this one, probably not so much. Very much like Google PageRank decides, hey, which, which search results should we give you for, you know, searching dog breeds? It's based upon how many people cited to a particular site or whatever it is. So when we do some simple citation analysis, we get this. And you'll still see some of those Chinese companies, I think. Uh, Maybe not. No. Yeah, there you go. That's a Chinese company, I bet. Yeah, how did you know that? Yeah. Uh, but anyway, you see the difference. We suddenly see uh, much less representation by China. And I'm not necessarily saying their patents aren't good. I'm, I'm only saying that there are some indicators that the numbers aren't everything. And, and I'll, I'll say again, uh, 
if there's anybody from China who could possibly be offended by it, there, there is certainly a lot of blockchain innovation going on in China, no doubt about it. The only issue is, is it really that much more than in other countries? And I would say it's not as much as the numbers would say. Uh, so, patent risk. I think we, we talked about this. Uh, you know, the, the risk is that you get sued. Uh, you only get sued if you're, if you're successful. So again, congratulations. Yes, sir. Yeah, it's a it's a great question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I, I should have I should have said that. Now, uh, it's very. The question is: Is there an is there an issue with citation analysis uh, based on the fact that these Chinese applications are mostly, for the most part, filed in in the Chinese language uh, initially? And that uh, there are uh, uh, you know large swaths of the world don't understand Chinese and wouldn't know to cite to it. And yes, uh, and I'll say in fact for a long time I had trouble even searching Chinese patents uh, because because of the language barrier, and it's hard to find search tools that that uh, work in in uh, any Chinese dialect. And I don't speak Chinese. Uh, the reason we're seeing all these now is because they're all getting filed in the U.S. also. And, and the European Patent Office, for that matter. Uh, and they're being filed in English. Uh, certainly in the US, they're all filed in English. And, and if they're filed in the European Patent Office, they're filed in, uh, you know, in German or French or English. Uh, and there may, be, there may be other acceptable language in the EPO. I don't mean to slight anybody. But anyway, in a Western language. So I think that's not, it's certainly somewhat of a problem, but not as much anymore because they're filing them all in other countries also. But uh, it, was a, it was a huge problem, and in fact, these all popped up out of nowhere, it seemed. And it's because we weren't searching them well. Because you know, I, I, I do this search every few months, and one, about a year and a half ago, suddenly uh, 230 patents popped up at the People's Bank of China that I hadn't seen before. And it was all because of search issues not being you know, published in English. Uh, okay. So, you know, kind of two basic kinds of risk. One is competitive patent assertions, you know, uh, I, I uh, do transactions on a blockchain, I have a patent, and you're doing transactions on a blockchain, and you're using my cross-chain transaction methodology, to use the example we had here, and you're my competitor, and I, I want you to stop or pay me a royalty or something because you're, you know, benefiting from my innovation. And, and uh, that, that can be, we can debate about whether that forwards innovation or not, or whether it hinders innovation. But sort of the, the, the primary poor use of patents in my mind are what are called patent trolls. Anybody ever hear this term? And uh, they're, they're, patent troll is, of course, the pejorative term. So again, I don't want to offend any patent trolls in the audience. They could be called patent assertion entities, non-practicing entities. But these are, these are businesses that buy patents from others. They're not innovators. They buy patents, and they use them, and they assert them, and they don't compete in the marketplace, by definition. Uh, they assert patents against those who are competing in the marketplace for a return on investment. You know, they find patents that are being infringed, 
and they usually buy them from innovators. They buy them from startups that, that uh, ultimately went under and had some great patents and they, they sold them to, to liquid for, uh, to bring, get some liquidation out of it, out of the project. Uh, companies like IBM who have tens of thousands of patents, it's very expensive to maintain patents. They will often every year go through their patents and sell off the ones that aren't as important to them. You know, they'll sell them off, they take a license so that they can't infringe, and they don't care who they sell them to. Happens all the time. And so you, you get a letter from one of these uh, non-practicing entities. This is what's typical in the U.S. And, and to date, this has been predominantly the U.S., but that's going to change. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, a letter that says, you know, we think you infringe our patent, and uh, if you pay us, oh, $300,000 US will go away. We'll give you a license and we'll leave you alone. And, the, and uh, these parties come to us, to their lawyers, and they say, do I infringe this patent? And I say, well, I don't know. But if you pay me, oh, $250,000, I can figure it out. Okay? And uh, then I can give you my opinion with that better than 50% or less than 50% certainty. And then, if they sue you, you know, maybe you'll get it done for $2 million, and maybe you'll win. And you'll only be out $2 million, but maybe you'll, you'll lose. And this is the uncertainty. And, and it, so you can see they use that high cost of, of patent litigation as, as leverage to essentially extort you in many cases. Now, there are certain non-practicing entities that have valuable real patents, but some of them are just garbage, and they know it. And, and you know they, they use this number. It's always two hundred to three hundred thousand dollars U.S. because that that kind of works out, and you end up paying them a hundred thousand dollars and they go away. You know I don't know about you, but that's a lot of money to me. So uh, that's a big problem. And there's some tools to fighting them. Uh, as I mentioned, primarily in the U.S. and why in the U.S. because there's a single court system that is very expensive and very inefficient and has a huge market. Uh, because patents are jurisdictional. I think I skipped over that. But, you know, if you have a U.S. patent, it only, uh, it, it only is effective against infringement that takes place in the U.S. If you, have, if you have a German patent, it's only Germany. You get the idea. Uh, and every country on down the road. And even a European, an EPO, European Patent Office patent, ends up being an individual patent in each of the countries, and you'd have to sue in each one individually. So, for example, if we look at the EU as a, a marketplace that is comparable to that of the U.S., you, you end up in, uh, you know, 22 different courts if you want to file, you know, uh, everywhere. Uh, I don't remember how many members. Okay, I'm, I'm getting the watch. So, very expensive. Uh, but there's going to be a U European unitary patent and a unified patent court, and that will be one court for the whole market, and I think that will open the door to the patent trolls. So, uh, this is just to show you guys, if, if you think there really aren't patent trolls in, the, uh, uh, in this space, this is a company called Enchain, and this is what this guy said, and he's, you know, I suspect he will be a patent assertion entity. Uh, there are, I'll conclude with this, I will say, there are several patent communities, and this is the answer to all these bad uses of patents that I've been talking about, are patent communities, and I'd be glad to talk to any of you about patent communities at any time feel free to contact me. They all address these in, in different ways. But thank you so much, and I know I'm out of time, but uh, 
It's been fun. Can you hear me with this thing? Great. Thank you very much, Mark. It's a pleasure. Uh, one organizational matter. Um, if we maybe could take the questions afterwards, that would be a little bit uh, better also for the people joining us online because then they can also hear what you are asking. All right. Uh, I will shortly introduce myself. Uh, my name is Hans Borsen and uh, I'm an attorney at law in Berlin and I'm, I also have the privilege of being a research fellow at the European Blockchain Center. Today I will talk to you about uh, non-fungible tokens and European copyright law. I've named my presentation uh, Mincing NFTs, a fresh breath for European copyright law. Uh, as you will see later on, uh, minting has nothing to do with the plant as such, but NFTs definitely have a fresh breath for European copyright law. I will do so by uh, shortly um, showing you what is the NFT market all about, then what is an NFT actually, and then uh, I will go on and uh, explain the uh, process of minting an NFT uh, in, very, uh, in a very detailed matter and uh, we'll do a copyright uh, analysis next to it. All right, we will start out with uh, a number and uh, the number is 24.9 billion US dollars. That is the trading volume of NFTs last year. Just in comparison, that's 10% of the global film market size. I think that's quite uh, incredible and uh, the more important it is that we talk about which rights are actually infringed or not infringed, maybe. Uh, NFTs are usually traded on platforms, and um, I've listed you the four biggest platforms, which I will just give a short introduction to. Um, the by far largest uh, platform is OpenSea. Uh, OpenSea is, um, as the name already says, open. Uh, it's not curated. Um, you can basically list all sorts of NFTs there. The second biggest is uh, Axie Infinity. Um, Axies are small Pokemon-like creatures uh, which you can create and trade uh, on that very platform. And uh, the next one is uh, Lava Labs. Uh, Lava Labs was uh, the creator of uh, uh, CryptoPunks. I don't know if you've seen them before, but these are randomly generated uh, characters which trade uh, basically in the millions. And uh, the fourth one is um, NBA Top Shot. Um, at NBA Top Shot you can trade uh, digital trading cards with uh, small video clips. Like trading cards are those that you use to trade also uh, in the schoolyard, but now they are on the blockchain. Uh, NFTs have different use cases, uh, art, as we already talked about a little bit, uh, gaming, music, and then also verifying or tracking physical assets. Um, this is uh, like verifying and tracking. 
physical assets is actually something we're going to talk about uh, at the end of uh, the presentations because uh, Nicola is going to give a presentation on that very subject. Uh, we go on to talk about what an NFT actually is and in order to understand what a non-fungible token is, you would have to understand what is actually a token. And a token, uh, very easily explained, is uh, a representation of something in the blockchain. Now, that could be uh, value. So, for example, the Bitcoin token represents some sort of monetary value. And um, in order to understand uh, non-fungible tokens, you would have to differentiate between fungible tokens and non-fungible tokens because non-fungible tokens are distinguishable uh, and you um, must track the ownership of each one separately. That means, put it shortly, you can actually see which token is at which wallet at any given time. This is not necessarily possible with uh, fungible tokens. Now, I'm going to explain to you the life cycle of an NFT and uh, the life of an NFT actually starts a little bit before the NFT is created. Uh, namely, it starts with the uh, creation of the asset. And it's very important to, under to separate the asset, which uh, is represented by the token, and the token itself. Uh, the next step would be creating or minting an NFT and um, you do that in in uh, by linking the asset uh, to the token. And we will go into much more detailed version of this uh, shortly, but this is basically how it works. Then, uh, as I explained before, um, you can transfer NFT uh, and um, this usually occurs on uh, platforms. Uh, basically here, the token shifts the wallet and this usually uh, occurs against uh, some sort of value. So I pay you this and you give me that token. Um, the life uh, of an NFT ends with uh, the so-called burning, and that is uh, destruction of the token. Every wallet holder is usually allowed to destroy his or her token. Now uh, we'll go into the elements of an NFT. Um, as I already explained before, um, there are marketplaces or platforms. Then there are wallets. Uh, wallets is something similar to a bank account, uh, but for tokens, uh, those can be fungible or non-fungible. Um, these wallets, they hold the token, and in the token, there's a link, and this link points to some metadata which specifies the asset. And in the metadata, there's another link which points to the source of the asset. Uh, the, and the source is usually some sort of online repository. This sounds uh, probably new and uh, complicated, um, but um, it will become much more clear when uh, we go into the details of minting an NFT. And I will um, do so by uh, giving a step-by-step -step explanation, and uh, this will basically be accompanied by a legal analysis. 
The first step of minting an NFT is uh, creating the source. And um, you do so by uploading an asset to an online repository. An online repository is usually off-chain and uh, could, be, uh, could be any online storage, basically. In our case, uh, we have um, uh, this work here, which is uh, uploaded to the uh, online repository. And um, out of uh, reasons of uh, coherence, uh, we have, in this very case here, no rights to the work. So basically, we are uploading something which uh, is not ours. And um, if we do so, this is nothing special in copyright law. Um, we do what we call a reproduction, and we might do a communication to the public. Um, there is a little bit of a discussion going on. Um, you in order to have a communication to the public, you will actually need a public. And if you upload something to a very obscure uh, website with around 80 decimals, nobody will ever find this. And uh, hence, the federal, court, uh, federal High Court of Germany has ruled, well, in this case, it's not public. But if it's easily findable, then there is a public. And we would have a communication to the public and hence two, two uh, an infringement of two different rights. In the next step, uh, we create uh, the set metadata. The metadata is basically an Excel sheet, more or less, uh, which describes the asset. So it uh, will describe who is the creator, uh, what is the, the name of the asset, uh, there was maybe a short description, and most importantly, the metadata will have a source to the place, uh, will have a link to the place where we uploaded uh, the asset, as I showed you just before. Here, in my uh, humble opinion, there is no infringement of copyright. Um, I say so because um, there's an interesting case uh, by the High Court of Zweibrücken, and it says, well, in order to have a communication to the public, you will have, um, like, the basic internet user will, uh, the basic internet user's knowledge must suffice to avail themselves access. Uh, and there must be no intermediate steps. And to find this metadata, somewhere then you have to trans uh, you have to translate the metadata into some readable language uh, on a web browser that is not exactly what a basic internet user can do and hence i think no communication to the public we go on to uh, the third step and uh, the third step is uh, creating or minting the token and um, you do this by basically stamping the link to the metadata into the token, and then the token is deployed on the blockchain. Again, in my opinion, uh, no infringement here, um, especially also no communication to the public. Um, there is uh, a case uh, also from the Federal uh, High Court of Germany that says there is a communication to the public, 
if you can search for uh, the asset or the work in this case and you will find it and uh, in theory you should be able to search the, the blockchain on uh, for the asset but I've tried it myself uh, I minted uh, a token with uh, a work that I had uploaded myself and although I followed all the steps it was simply not possible hence in my opinion, again, no communication to the public. Fourth step. This is where it gets interesting. So now we're offering the token for sale on a public platform. You do that by connecting your wallet to uh, a public accessible platform. And uh, the platform will then show the links to the work and the work itself. You can see that uh, the platform I'm using in this example is very public because people are already running to the platform because they've seen the token, as you can see with the little person up there. Here, there's uh, no infringement of the reproduction rights, but um, there is, in my opinion, a communication to the public. Uh, I draw here from the uh, cases from this uh, ECJ, um, YouTube and uh, Suando and uh, basically they say when users post links to works uh, publicly or upload a work to a platform publicly accessible this results in a, uh, in a communication to the public basically what we are doing here with a small little step in between the result is the same hence in my opinion a communication to the public. Now I've made a little interesting variation, namely the metadata in the, the token points to a work uh, published by a right holder. This would for example uh, be the case where I'm an artist and uh, I upload the work uh, to my own website and then Roman uh, would come around create an NFT pointing to the work and upload it to uh, a public platform. Then the linked source in the token will be displayed on the platform as I already explained before and the wallet holder of the NFT may uh, sell this very token. And the big question is, um, link is linking to a legal source uh, an infringement of the right to communicate to the public. And when we look at the case law of the ECJ, you will have to say no. This is actually no infringement because um, the in order for it to be an infringement, the copyright holder, that would be me in our fictional case, would have to adopt measures to limit access to his or her work from websites other than this, this than that of his or her licensees. And uh, this, uh, ladies and gentlemen, means that you can sell NFTs which point to lawful sources without infringing European copyright law. Please don't do that because uh, there might be other legal reasons why you shouldn't do, but out of a legal perspective, in my opinion, this is possible. And uh, with uh, this uh, fresh breath to European copyright law, I would like to conclude my presentation. I uh, 
hope that uh, this was interesting and or I sparked your interest in NFTs. Uh, if you want to know more about NFTs, please come around to NFT Nordic uh, in August in Copenhagen, where the European Blockchain Center will uh, be an academic partner. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, thank for thank you for that very interesting presentation, Hans. Uh, your your ideas about linking uh, reminded me a lot about a lot of the cutting edge cases we had with respect to uh, the use of internet, uh, with respect to deep linking, linking to not illegal content but to databases directly into databases that were there illegally. Uh, and I think your conclusion was right, and uh, you probably also uh, have the opinion that there might be marketing uh, uh, act uh, violations or other things like that uh, that would be relevant there. But but this just shows how um, how much this is actually to some extent linked to all the discussions we've had before, uh, whenever new technology is emerging, where some of the key issues are around linking from one asset to the other uh, at the network, not necessarily holding it in your own piece of uh, cupboard on your under your table, but somewhere on the network. So that's very interesting. Uh, I'm going to give you some ideas about how blockchain technology relates to uh, another kind of technology or another kind of concept of technology that has been very much uh, in very very important uh, in every rise of new technology for the last 20 years, uh, and that is blockchain technology. Um, I think uh, I would like to start with some kind of a more, we could even say philosophical overview of where we are with this, uh, with respect to, to also blockchain technology and open source. Uh, I think it's interesting to look at blockchain technology from the viewpoint of decentralization um, because open source uh, is also uh, a concept which very much uh, takes some kind of an attitude towards the concept of, of decentralization and you could even look at it in a, uh, in a software historical perspective you you could maybe pushing a little bit too far in a very pragmatic IT university but if I was doing this at a liberal arts college, I would probably say more with pride that this has kind of a Hegelian view of, of software development that you on the one hand have a, a thesis, then you have an antithesis, then a synthesis or, uh, or in that along that way. And, and uh, everything uh, with 
within software, at least as long as I can remember, I'm, I'm pretty old uh, compared to a lot of the other people here. Uh, there's always this thing about that you have these kind of technologies that are competing uh, with respect to being open or closed, open source versus closed source. Uh, it could be uh, control versus, uh, uh, versus freedom. It could be the idea of you have very close uh, access to decide. You have a, a clear, uh, you have clear possibilities of deciding who is going to use uh, a resource, who is going to use uh, software, uh, or you can actually have it uh, to be totally out of control. Uh, you can always, you can probably remember the discussion about blockchain technology, uh, especially in the context of Bitcoin, where it was primarily promoted as uh, some kind of an anarchical, uh, some kind of an anarchy approach, a uh, libertarian pr approach to governance as opposed to uh, the kind of attitude that you would see that most businesses or governments would have to the use of software in general, that you need to have some kind of, kind of control of what's going on. Uh, and finally, uh, that leads us to centralization or, or decentralization. Uh, and, and as you probably all know, that one of the key characteristics of blockchain technology is that a lot of decentralization takes place, both in the sense of decision-making, but also in the sense of where the data will reside, the distributive nature of copies of the database. Uh, so, so I think open source and blockchain technology is, is a part of this constant dance between open and closed, uh, decentralized and uh, centralized, uh, control and non-controlled. Uh, it's also a part of, of, you could say, a kind of competition between uh, different economic or business models that have been uh, that is part of, of software and the software industry. Uh, everybody has been talking about disruption for a period. Uh, and all new technologies within software has to some, some extent distorted, disrupted uh, the current way of looking at the use of software, both from a business perspective, but also from a technological perspective. Uh, and then at a certain point, that maybe polar view or extreme view has uh, seen some kind of consolidation. Uh, you would have then the synthesis and you would be back again. And it's also very interesting to look at this in the perspective of monopoly or competition that uh, everybody was talking about the Windows monopoly. Then you saw the internet to sort of uh, disrupt that. Then everybody was talking about that there would be a monopoly on top of the internet, which is a data monopoly. And then you have uh, blockchain that is supposed to disrupt and bring competition uh, uh, as, a, as a remedy against the data monopolies. And of course, uh, this is not the end of history, so you will see somebody trying to make a monopoly on top of the distributed data. There could be something else, but, but it is, uh, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm sort of being a little bit pessimistic, but I actually don't think it's pessimistic. It's actually uh, a, a way to show that history is progressing. Uh, and that is that you will always see that somebody will try to uh, create a monopoly on some of something. Uh, and this is obviously also the case here. It might be that uh, to some still blockchain technology is the 
Wyoming cat cattle ranchers wild west wet dream of non-interference, but it will not be that, obviously, because everybody wants to be a monopolist. Uh, there's a few things that Peter Thiel got right, uh, but one obviously is to understand that everybody is trying to create a monopoly. There's just a societal perspective saying, that, well, I would like to have a monopoly on, a, uh, on being a lawyer. That would be great, as a matter of fact, but there is a risk that somebody else will get it before me. So I actually am opposed to, to monopolies. And you should also look uh, at the concept of open source and, and, uh, and um, uh, blockchain in that perspective. Uh, I think, lastly, uh, you should also look at it from the perspective that there is actually already some kind of a uh, reaction against blockchain uh, in the to to uh, totally open, generally Bitcoin-like uh, technology approach, and that would be DLT, the digital ledger technology, which to some extent could be argued is not really blockchain anymore because there is, uh, at least from a governance perspective, still some kind of a centralization taking place so you can actually correct errors, uh, you can actually uh, contravene the irreversibility e of what it's other uh, what's normally looked at as the key characteristic of, of blockchain technology. And you're probably going to see something on top of that again. I'm, I call it the world computer or Web3 or whatever, but, but this is the dance that is always going on. So what does open source mean? Uh, let me just briefly uh, touch upon that. It's, uh, it's a development model, but it's also a licensing model. And uh, from a development point of view, there are different views. Uh, the decentralized views is the cathedral versus the bazaar. Uh, idea that uh, everything takes place uh, in open source development along, um, uh, among a lot of different actors uh, that are dispersed, not, not able to in any way uh, coordinate. Uh, they have some kind of an, a pre-Bitcoin uh, consensus me mechanism that means that nobody's really able to decide because there's a, like in a bazaar, it's more like a Heigen uh, way of organizing prices uh, that it takes days takes place spontaneously, but but uh, and that that's the the price mechanism or the the information uh, the spont sponta spontaneous order of of information is the consensus mechanism in this space. But then you also of course have the fact that today most open source software is not done by uh, lonely hackers in basements uh, eating uh, pizzas and coke. Uh, drinking Coke, uh, it's done mostly, I think it's like 90% is actually sponsored by corporates. Uh, Microsoft is, uh, at the moment, I think, uh, in the top three contributors to uh, Linux. Uh, so there you have the reaction uh, against the uh, anarchy or the decentralization. Uh, and also, on top of that, you will find that there is actually some kind of, even though that we are not talking about one company controlling one open source project, there is still a hierarchy. There is some more difficult to ascertain, uh, ascertain to figure out uh, coordination taking place that is not anarchy. It's what, for lack of a better word, could be called duocracy. Those who are actually doing it get to right to actually decide. And there will be some other hierarchies taking place. Linux is is run to some extent by 
maybe 10 or 20 people who are actually informally in charge of, of Linux. It, they might not have a law supporting them, they might not have a contract, but, but they are part of a, a hierarchy. And then, in that sense, uh, open source uh, is not democratic, it's very intransparent, and you could actually say it's oligopolistic, uh, it's counter to the concept of, of, of free competition. So that's the development model. Uh, the licensing model is also interesting because uh, it actually is what you could call a legal hack on somebody's originally Richard Stallman's idea that we could not really uh, accept the way the copyright prevented people from freely using uh, code. So it's a legal hack around that, saying that because we have copyright, because there is actually a law stating that the, that the person who creates the code can decide on what term it is going to be used, then I will use that right to actually make it available to all the others as though that law did not exist. So it's the it's kind of counterintuitive uh, that the only reason why we have open source today, as in open source licensing, is because we have strong copyright law, which is why what it was trying to circumvent to start with. So it's kind of a legal hack on that. Uh, it's also interesting that, that uh, it's, 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 uh, it's not really a contract. Uh, it's not like if you're using uh, open source software, then there's an agreement between the two of us. It's actually just that I'm saying in a license to the rest of the world, I have copyright, but I here waive the rights in this and this way, so you can use it under this license. There are also all different other kind of open approaches to intellectual property right. Uh, but, but it starts, I would also say it ends with uh, code and copyright to code. But there will also be uh, Creative Commons, which is uh, kind of copy, uh, open source copy, uh, licensing tools for content, like uh, music or video or pictures and so on. Uh, then there's open data, and that's also very, very important in a, in a blockchain perspective. Uh, but then you also have uh, things that are more covering on, on Mark's presentation or, or related to that, uh, patents and trademarks. Uh, uh, one of the most important uh, ways to uh, combat these trolls within the open source uh, world is open innovation network which is a group of, of patent holders who got together to say, we'll pool our, our, all our interest, and in this case, protect anybody who claims they have a patent against Linux. So we can tell them, okay, you might, you might want to sue us, but we'll sue you double or three times or four times, so uh, you, you guys should probably stop. Uh, and that, that's proven to be pretty effective. Uh, then there are other things like open APIs, which is, uh, the same as I my last bullet point, open BS or open bullshit, because it's not really open in any sense. It's, uh, uh, it's open in the way that you can access my data through this API until I say that it's not open anymore. So it's not really in the, in, in the open source uh, perspective uh, open. And then, of course, you have the concept of open innovation, which is also to a large extent, I, I'm s I think I could say this at the IT University, I would be very, very... Uh, I would not be very popular to say this as the, at the Copenhagen Business School, but open innovation is, is also open BS in a sense. It's also say that it's nice to say open uh, around totally 
old-fashioned models about coordinating work, uh, not radically to open source licensing uh, templates, but more like let's have a partnership agreement saying that we can we 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 will work together. The, the licensing model uh, is, of course, very complex in a sense, uh, but uh, it's also very easy. And it's, uh, it's interesting as a lawyer that uh, it's often viewed to be very, very difficult to relate to open source licenses. Uh, and a lot of the lawyers that I'm talking to and a lot of the clients that we have where we are discussing open source licenses, the, the, the internal lawyers will be uh, very, very uh, frustrated with, with these licenses. I don't know really what they mean. Uh, and I find that, honestly, I, I like that because that means that they will ask me about how to interpret them. But, but on the other hand, it is kind of uh, strange because these licenses are very short. Uh, you can read them very easily. Uh, they do not really change. Uh, but you if you ask them, uh, can you tell me what's in a Microsoft license? Nobody has a clue, and but they'll accept it anyway and uh, that license and the sort of the schedules which uh, are not just one page schedules but maybe be a folder uh, that changes every two weeks or something like that uh, and they they don't care about that i think they care about it but but they have sort of recited to the facts <laughs> that, that they don't have a clue what's actually in it uh, but open source licenses they are really diff uh, di uh, problematic but basically these open source licensing models are all about these four freedoms. I have the right to decide what's how you can use my code, and I give you fundamentally four freedoms instead of restrictions. Instead of saying you cannot do this and this and this and this, and you might be lucky to use it for one computer at one time in two days, uh, I'll say to you, uh, you can use it for whatever you want to do, basically. If you just use it yourself, use it. You could also access the source code not just use the object code, but access the source code. You can make changes to it, which you cannot do normally under copyright law because you're not allowed to modify. And you can also take copies of what you have received and give it to whoever you want to do. And those are the four freedoms. And there are a couple of different licenses. I'm not going to go deep into that, but there's basically the pernicious licenses, the MIT or BSD license and the Apache license, which gives you those four freedoms without any restrictions. And then the copyleft licenses, which are uh, the ones by the Free Software Foundation, uh, Linux is under that. Uh, and uh, that basically also gives you those four freedoms, but with the added restrictions saying that uh, if you make a modification of what I gave you the right to modify, if you do that and you distribute those two things together as a whole work, then you are obligated to release your own stuff which you would have your own copyright under uh, uh, or for, uh, you would have to release that under the same license. So the whole package uh, is still in the same. And there are the, uh, you probably also hear the general public license, that, that's the most famous one, but there is also Mozilla, which is the one, uh, Netscape, uh, the Mozilla browser is on, on, which is a version of, of a, a, a copyleft license. So if we look at the blockchain technology stack, I just found two. You could actually find uh, on my presentation afterwards references. I didn't, uh, I'm not sure what I was, <laughs> was allowed to copy it, but at least there are references to where they're from. And I think it's interesting to see here that regardless of how you look at it, then all through the stack, uh, open source software is predominant. 
it might be in certain situations or in certain uh, uh, levels of the stack, it's not that predominant, but at least if you look at it uh, at the left, uh, uh, at, the, at the graphics to the left, you can see that uh, the internet is primarily built on open source software. Uh, the, uh, the infrastructure that runs the internet is open source. Uh, and we'll get into the others uh, just in a minute, but, but most of it is actually built on open source software uh, to start with. There might be, of course, something at the user experience level, which is based on uh, proprietary software, but most of the other is based on open source software. And this is the same, uh, but in words, that uh, blockchain technology is basically built on software. Uh, and the software will be uh, the software that is running the internet, uh, the servers on which uh, mining takes place, the nodes, uh, the hardware on which the software is installed. Uh, it might be the PCs on which wallets are running or so on. Uh, at least at that point, uh, the internet, the servers, um, a lot of the, 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 the firmware still, but some not that much still, but, but the internet and servers are totally open source, most of it. I mean, uh, nothing is running these days on anything else than Linux uh, web servers or Apache web servers or some version of that. Um, you would also see that uh, some of the PCs are obviously are not running on open source software like Apple, even though that Apple's operating system is to a large extent based on FreeBSD. Uh, but uh, mobile devices, Maybe not the iPhone, but Android is based on open source software. But then you also get to the node software. That software that is running on the nodes that makes up a blockchain is also to a large extent almost entirely based on open source. Uh, and you might then see that some of the client software, some of the wallets that you might, uh, or some of the client software, or the application, the user interface that you might have on your computer yourself or your mobile phone is not open source. But, but some of it is. Uh, then interesting also, some of the uh, software that is running on the nodes uh, on, on that, that is part of the, 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 the ledgers, which are the smart contracts and the decentralized app, uh, uh, applications, are also to some extent built on open source. Uh, so, so again, you can see most of it is actually open source built. Uh, it's interesting that, that that does not really apply to other uh, IPR in the sense that uh, trademarks are not open sourced and that is because that's a key to a lot of the business models that you can actually say, well, you run this software that everybody can use, but you can only trust me to provide the services that I give you uh, or the integrity of this code uh, because open source software comes without any guarantees, warranties whatsoever. It's free, so don't expect me to support it. But if you buy something with me under that trademark, then you can uh, expect uh, that you will get something, but then you have to pay for it. And obviously that's not something that everybody else then can use my, uh, uh, my trademark to, uh, to, uh, to benefit from that. And th as you mentioned, <laughs> there are a lot of patents, uh, even then to some extent, uh, at least to, to the key parts of, uh, of blockchain technology, Patents are antithetical to, to that. I mean, it's 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 very that you can there's no no uh, none of the open source software that's running most of the blockchains 
that, are, that have patents around it. It's more financial uh, applications on top of it, and, and maybe also some uh, consensus mechanisms and some protocols. Uh, but, but, but most of the stuff, and most of the successful stuff, uh, is, uh, is not based on any. Uh, you can use it without having to ask anybody who has got a patent uh, to do that. Um, I just mentioned regulation. I don't think that uh, it's just to mention that there is also this aspect that is, is probably the most uh, one of the one of the most interesting areas uh, is to say what well how does actual regulation comply to the use of blockchain, and you can imagine GDPR, consumer law, and all kind of compliance things will tear the head out of everybody who's going to make a business of that and and uh, pay pay for for the salaries of a lot of lawyers. Uh, and then finally, and uh, this is going to be the last part of my presentation, uh, the data aspect. Because I think thi this is really maybe one of the most uh, revolutionary aspects of open source and blockchain. That is the fact that uh, a blockchain is a database, and a database holds data. Uh, and uh, I, I sort of coined that term myself, applied open data, because we already know the concept of open data that uh, people can agree that a database is available to everybody under own open source license. But what is interesting here is that all, even the DLT versions where the consensus mechanism is maybe somehow centralized or governed in a traditional way, it, they, they, as far as I know, all to some extent, uh, all prim primarily has, the t has a technology that is based on that there are databases locally stored on all the nodes in the system. Uh, so this, this is a key characteristic of, I guess, all blockchain uh, systems and all DLT, uh, that, that you still have distributed data. Uh, and uh, that would be both, uh, it could be both the, the actual data about the ledger, uh, transaction uh, uh, data, uh, and, and these things that are, are used to record what's going on in the ledger, but it can also be uh, things that are kept as part of that uh, code, the smart contract code, uh, and, and information that, is that, that uh, the smart contract is using that is stored on the ledger. But then, of course, also, as we heard before, there's a lot of data that's not part of the blockchain, but it's only a link, as you mentioned, uh, with respect to NFTs. Uh, some of the NFTs could actually, some aspect of that could actually be situated on the ledger as well, but in a lot of situations it's actually residing somewhere else off-chain. Uh, but, but the key part here is, is here that you cannot talk about blockchain technology unless you recognize that a key aspect of that is that there will be substantial a substantial database distributed among all the nodes. Uh, and uh, these databases might, uh, to s uh, at least in the EU, EU st uh, be protected by copyright. Uh, so in principle, also the ledger data should be uh, part of a copyrighted protected database. Um, but, but again, I mean, the, the, uh, the, the challenge is here uh, that, that this, this data, which uh, we start to believe is irreversible in the sense it cannot be changed, it cannot be tampered with. To a, in a lot of databases, uh, DLT databases, the idea is that this can actually be changed because otherwise it couldn't be used. If you have a database where the whole idea is that uh, it can never be changed, then uh, there's no government solutions, there are no 
business enterprise solution that can use it because make uh, correcting an error is fundamental to both the way the government are, are paying out uh, social security or the way that uh, you comply with GDPR or uh, the way that you make sure that if somebody has uh, s transferred money uh, uh, by mistake to somewhere else, it can actually be changed afterwards. There are different ways to do that, but, but, but the fact that, that you have to be able to correct data is central to most serious use of, 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 uh, of, uh, of, a, of a blockchain. And the whole idea is, of course, to, to uh, in, in this setting, is to, to discuss who actually owns these data. And uh, this is very difficult to say. I mean, if you have an open, if you have Bitcoin, for instance, you, do, you don't know who owns, who owns the, the, the data that's part of the ledger. I, I don't know. Uh, I, I've, I've seen some, some discussions about it, and uh, they're very academic. <laughs> because the fact is that, uh, that you might say that somebody might own some of it, uh, but the fact is that, that even though that somebody owned it, they cannot control it. It's out of control, uh, and, and the situation is that, that uh, uh, you, have to, you have to recognize that it is, in that sense, open data. And I think this is where, where I find uh, really a use for blockchain technology uh, also in in not just Bitcoin situations, but also in other situations where it's enterprise or government, uh, I think it's unique in the sense that you can, uh, you can still make sure with the caveat of a error-correcting governance mechanism that the starting point is that you can totally believe these data's integrity. And you cannot do that if it's an open database that everybody can just copy and do whatever they want with. Here there is actually a unique way to apply the, uh, the, the, the concept of open data uh, and add integrity uh, by putting on, uh, on a blockchain. Uh, the other thing is that, and I think this is one of the reasons that a lot of uh, otherwise very closed business consortiums are using blockchain technology is that you cannot monopolize the data. Uh, if somebody, if we all agreed that this uh, data was under an open source license, but it was maintained at my company, then there would be a risk that even though that there would become some kind of a right for me to actually, uh, uh, for everybody to get access to that, but I would control it. And, and, and uh, if, if, I don't tr if somebody didn't trust me, which is not unlikely, I'm a lawyer, uh, then, then it would be kind of a, uh, he, uh, I mean, it, you, it, it would be expensive to create that kind of a trust. But if you have, a copy of the data all the time and you know whether it's correct or not and it is on all the nodes in the consortium, then people are pretty sure that nobody can hijack, can capture the data and run away and do something uh, with it. Uh, and finally, there's also the IT security perspective that, that these setups can actually provide some kind of a non-single uh, point of failure remedy, which I think is very important. I just mentioned, uh, and this will be my uh, last slide, there are a number of open source projects out there, I mentioned, and most of them, some of them, the, the Ethereum versions are mostly under uh, copyleft licenses, uh, but most of the um, more specialized blockchains uh, where it's expected that it should be used by businesses, governments are actually under the Apache license, which are a permissive license where nobody will uh, risk that by using this software together with your proprietary software that they will run into some kind of a copyleft uh, 
provisions saying that you have to release your own stuff. And it is also one of the, the licenses that has the most clearest uh, wording on, on patents. So even though that it's, uh, it's, it does not allow you to patent what is uh, under the open source license, it's more clear what, uh, what rules are actually there to cover your, your, your obligation to make your some of your own patents available and, and so on. Um, and finally, some of the business models, uh, I think uh, the reason why open source is being used in blockchain uh, connections or, or under blockchain projects, uh, there are some of the straightforwards, which is that you have a community, you have some kind of a new platform that you want to build, uh, you will save costs by using open source software, you don't have to have one pe person using it, but, but a lot of people will develop on it. Uh, there is a lot of marketing and employment uh, benefits, uh, and again, uh, you don't have to pay hemorrhaging a lot of money to build that trust because people trust uh, open source uh, more than they will trust uh, that this software will be controlled by this uh, single vendor or this single government somewhere that, that might not be trustworthy tomorrow. Uh, a lot of money are being made uh, by companies uh, producing this software, which are then saying, well, we can actually make money by making some of the core software available, and then we'll make money uh, on setting licenses to uh, different services around it. Uh, it can be plug-in, uh, it can be other things, and you will see also that these uh, business models around GPL exemptions are, are not unknown in this space as well, saying that uh, this blockchain software, we will release that under a GPL, which means that there is a copyleft chance, but uh, you as a government or you as an enterprise can totally be rid of that by buying a commercial license for us from us without GPL. Uh, and this, this is basically how MySQL become ex became extremely uh, profitable as a database, is was the fact that it was released under on the GPL, that a lot of people didn't really know whether they were going to, that were going to infect uh, their own software, so they just bought it uh, with the GPL exception. And then obviously uh, open source, like blockchain, is all about uh, service economy. You can make a lot of money uh, saying to somebody, we can actually, here's something that is open source, but uh, if you want us to make it better or integrate it or uh, develop new applications, you have to pay us. Uh, uh, here's something that's under an open source license. There is no guarantee whatsoever that it will work. It's free of charge, but you can you can use it. But if you want a warranty, if you want a commercial uh, software level agreement, service, service level agreement, then you will have to pay us. And then finally, uh, I think the whole idea around uh, IBM's use of uh, Hyperledger Fabric and Hyperledger Project is that they will provide blockchain as a service. I think that was it. Can you hear me? Yes, good. Uh, thank you very much, Martin. It was uh, very interesting. Uh, looking forward to a discussion later on with you and with Mark also, because I see some similarities align here. Uh, I'm uh, here to introduce uh, the last uh, presenter. Um, he cannot be here uh, with us today, but he's uh, joining uh, via live stream directly from uh, Alicante in Spain. Uh, his name is uh, Nicolas Hau, 
and he's a project specialist at uh, the European Intellectual Property Office. Uh, Nicola, can you hear us? Can't, can you hear me? Yes, great. Uh, the floor is yours. So under this, uh, under this organization, we've started a journey already five years ago that is still inspiring us today. And I'd like to take just a few moments uh, for you to understand where we are and why this presentation is going to try and connect the dots of what you've heard before uh, and put it in practice. Five years ago, the UIPO was uh, held a number of workshops uh, in Alicante, where the uh, UIPO office uh, is located. Uh, to talk about many different new technologies, including the blockchain technology. This led the office to believe that there was some uh, benefit to it by using blockchain technology in the fight against counterfeit uh, products. This led us in 2018 to undertake an event, a 48 hours uh, hackathon using blockchain, selecting blend teams, ded dedicated IT teams to test out the feasibility uh, of the idea. Can we all together try and find a solution to tackle counterfeits in society? Short answer, yes. We had a winner. Uh, there was an idea that was uh, produced back at that time 
called the digital twin. Now everyone is familiar with, with the, what the non-fungible token and a digital twin is, but four or five years ago, this was much more obscure. It, it led us as UIPO, as an office, to launch a blockathon forum, a set of enthusiast people that would like to come with us and create uh, an ID from scratch and build a, a prototype uh, to test further the, the idea. And in 2020, it led to the adoption as a strategic project for the office of the project I'm going to pre present to you today. <clears throat> Last year, while the project was uh, alive and kicking, we had a design contest uh, that was issued at EU level to call up from an additional support from the private sector to design a high level design uh, of such an infrastructure. And I will present this, uh, this solution that uh, won the, the contest later on. But before that, what I wanted to, uh, to explain to you uh, is two things. First, what exactly we want to do? Second, how does that apply in real world? So what is it that we wanted to do? Well, we wanted to do exactly what uh, has been mentioned throughout the different presentation before. We wanted essentially to use NFTs, digital twins, uh, that we would uh, attach to physical uh, assets and making sure that by doing a number of uh, information technology uh, application and softwares, we'll be able to track, track not only the physical product, but also the digital twin throughout the entirety of the supply chain. In a sense, what we were trying to prove was a capability to say that products are genuine from the beginning at the manufacturing site to the end, once the consumer has uh, his favorite pair of shoes. In the process and in the making, what we wanted to ensure as well is that it, the system benefits everyone in the system, including custom authorities, who would be able, before a ship arrives at the port, to be capable to uh, look on a database and be sure how much, how many, uh, how much percentage of the goods were considered as genuine in the ship that was incoming. And that is what we want to build right now. The project timeline is simple. Uh, we have a proof of concept to develop by the end of this year with a minimum viable product by the end of 2023. It has interdependency, this project, with, a, with three other projects that the office is carrying out. And I will just touch upon very briefly on them. First, the IP register on blockchain. Now, interestingly, what the UIP uh, ended up doing was going very fast in the building of a blockchain network between the office and the IP national office using blockchain technology to share data about trademark and design uh, from uh, the national authorities. It will also have links with what we call the IP enforcement portal. This project is about information sharing, providing a platform between custom authorities and right holders to share information about the characteristic of genuine goods, amongst other things. And finally, the anti-counterfeiting uh, technology guide, which is a third project interesting for, for this project in particular. Why? Because it lists out all the digitally enabled um, tag that uh, can be used in the market to tag a, a physical product. We've explained a bit what we wanted to do, and let's make it a bit more visual, if you like. We have a project use case uh, whereby our idea was to 
provide a platform, an authentication platform uh, that uh, would be used by the right holders to create digital twin. Now, the next thing uh, the right holder would be doing is to receive an authorization to create digital twins, the manufacturer creating and packaging the physical product, and then an NFT, a digital twin, would be issued and bound to the physical good using IoT devices. I can hear you loud and clear. Can you hear me? Sure. All right. So we were at the moment of the of the blue truck. Okay. So essentially, uh, what would happen once the, the product has been tagged uh, with the digital twin, uh, the product together with the digital twin would be handed over to the uh, logistic operator who would then take possession of the physical good and through a digital handshake would also receive the digital twin and so on and so forth until the end of the logistical node down to the uh, retailer as well as the consumer possibly. In the process, what would happen is that the enforcement authorities would have the capability to scan the product tag uh, using IoT device, and it would, they would be also uh, be capable to have uh, risk assessment analysis uh, carried out before the ship enters into port, as I was saying before. So in a nutshell, 
custom authorities would be able at pre-inspection to know whether uh, uh, a cargo or a container uh, holds genuine good, thus um, allowing green laning of products, and at inspection level to also discard a number of products if you, if you think about mixed consignment where a lot of different packages are combined into a same container. All of this down to, a, to the consumer who could then also take possibly uh, hold of the NFT together with the product. Why are we doing all this? Well, essentially, I've mentioned a, a couple of, of, of problems and challenges that we see, but apart from just the, uh, the question about uh, is it a fake or is it a real uh, product that I can see in front of me, um, there are also many different uh, challenges related to interconnecting the dots of all the stakeholders throughout the supply chain. We have legacy IT systems that do not communicate uh, between each other or have very low trust. Uh, we have uh, not a lot of time for custom authorities to uh, check whether goods are fake or genuine. Um, it's not just customers don't just look at product thinking, oh, IP protection. They think about uh, dangerous uh, and hazardous product as well. But also on the metaverse side, uh, the virtual world also holds its, its old challenges. Fake products with fake NFTs or real products with fake NFTs or vice versa. There is also the question on who to trust in all this uh, and who is checking the link between the NFTs. So that led us to, uh, to, the, to the IT high-level design solution that we have uh, carried out last year. Uh, last month, we hosted the, uh, the award ceremony uh, from uh, this design contest, and we were lucky to have on board the, the Blockathon 2018 winner as the winner of the, of the procedure. The consortium came out with an interesting idea that we would like to present today, and I'll try and make sure that I use my time wisely as I'm, I understand that we are already deep in time. Essentially, the whole idea behind the solution that uh, has been elected is to create an identity management for EYPO where organization would send uh, a request to gain credentials in order to create metadata package that would be applied on NFTs. I know it's, it's maybe not that simple as I, I, I may sound, uh, it may sound like, but what we're trying to do here is something uh, quite uh, simple in a sense that we make sure that the organization are the one they claim they are, that they can then use this credential to tag on their product, and then they do exactly what they want. They can use whatever NFT platform they want, the logistic operator can use any track and trace solution that they want. The product IT serialization, the barcode, the QR code can be any of form as long as it, it is digitally enabled. And the nice idea about the solution is also that it allows data to be selectively disclosed. And that's actually something that you've heard before on the previous presentation. And I'll take a, a few seconds to, 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 to highlight this point in the updated use case. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to show it to you right now. I hope that the sound is still good. So when we look at again at the, at the use case with, with the IT solution, we have uh, 
in this expected IT solution an identity registry where the right holder will call uh, to validate their organization credentials. It, they will use decentralized identifier and verifiable credential. It will allow them to get anti-counterfeiting label, physical and metadata, and to create NFT and anti-counterfeiting label through the use of their NFT platform of choice. They will then hand over this information to the manufacturer that will consume the, that will create still the package and consume the NFT, but it will apply the NFT to the physical good. And what the, the key aspects about this whole solution is what you can see right now on the right side, the product IT feature. The anti-counterfeiting label, which is a metadata package, itself is immutable. This one will not change, but part of the metadata package will be able to change additional product information. Think about, for example, a vaccine. If you have a vaccine that, uh, that maybe has an expiry date, um, the producer may want to call up whoever owns this vaccine at a certain date in time saying, hold on, uh, be careful, this vaccine is no longer viable. Well, if you do this type of metadata package, you would have access uh, for a change in the label from afar. More than that, you can even uh, select through selective disclosures what type of data you want each people to see. One of the, prob of the, plob of the problem in block blockchain, but in any technology really, is, a, is the lack of, uh, of, um, of trust. And by allowing certain range of data to be seen by a certain type of stakeholder in the chain, the right holder can say, okay, for the logistic operator, they will need to know the weight and the size and the volume of the product. But for the, for the, for the end retailer or the consumer, it may not be as interesting as uh, it is for the logistic operator. It might also be not interesting for the, for the custom authorities. So this is the key, the key part related to the to this solution that I wanted to highlight, uh, which in itself is quite innovative. The logistic operator then take uh, take possession of the physical good, call the re the identity registry to validate the organization credential, and take possession of the uh, of the NFT. In itself, the logistic node uh, will be complete if we look at it from a global perspective, not just a logistic operator, but all the actors that are in the chain, including freight forwarders and carriers. And they will use their own track and trace system with specific scan event that will uh, allow the blockchain to be updated frequently on who actually currently holds the product and its NFT. And finally, we would have again the retailer and the consumer that would take possession of the physical good together with the NFT. For the enforcement authorities, nothing's changed uh, compared to the use case that we've seen before. They can have, depending on whether they want to be part of the of the node or not, um, they can uh, check at pre-arrival, in transit or during inspection, the the physical good and have access to the NFT linked to them. So it comes down to, and it boils down essentially to what the UIPO will do uh, on the next step. And I will try to go fast. Um, we are going to build an identity register that will uh, allow us to emit uh, a number of public keys uh, to a certain number of organizations. And by, by that method, we will allow uh, a trusted system between organization of the same, of the same blockchain. What that means concretely is that we will have to uh, to remain uh, 
an open solution, uh, which is going to be agnostic in terms of what type of blockchain to use. Uh, we will be using this uh, the, this identity register uh, with uh, some connection to the bigger picture of European blockchain service infrastructure and any other type of services based on blockchain that will be provided to the citizens. So imagine that this solution could be tomorrow in the digital wallet of a consumer just to make sure that they know their product is real but it will just be the same digital wallet that they will be also using for accessing the diploma. And all of this is part of a bigger scheme that uh, the European uh, blockchain service infrastructure is trying to build. We will be using all the different tools that UIPO has been uh, providing to external stakeholders for many years, um, which are essentially the capability to list the trademark and design owner, but also the cap capacity to call uh, custom uh, authorities uh, through uh, AFAS. So essentially the capaci capacity for right holders to claim to custom authorities that a, a cargo uh, has um, counterfeited goods but also we'll make sure that it, it, is, it is connected to the custom risk assessment. And I, I, I repeat this, uh, this, this part many times in this presentation because it's key. If you think about all the stakeholders in the chain, the, re the reason why everyone would be interested in this solution to begin with is not that it connects everyone, it's, it, it allows to, to make things go faster and being sure in what we're, we're handling. So, green laning products, making sure that we have an authenticity uh, channeling system is key for this solution to work. At this stage, I think I will really uh, screen through the, a couple of slides uh, and uh, I will so very briefly present in, in visual what the solution components are. I will make sure that the, that the presentation is provided to the, to the audience uh, for deeper looks. Uh, just to understand that in this solution, standards will be key and everyone will be using a, number, a set of defined standards, including for uh, when it comes to logistics nodes, the use of, for example, IATA records, which allows to uniform uh, data, which is key for, for discussion between different databases. We will make sure that this uh, pilot that will be running uh, is part of a bigger uh, scheme, as I said, from the European blockchain service infrastructure, and that notarization would happen uh, on independent chain node by node, as well as uh, different uh, system and ERPs. I'll finish this uh, presentation that, that was very way too long already uh, by talking very quickly about our next step. Our idea is uh, to hold our next Blockathon forum on May 18, and therefore afterwards carry out a number of study visits to uh, go, um, well, on boots on the ground, talking with custom authorities, looking at the, at the maritime port, seeing maybe what are the main pain points that this solution may face. And in this process of study visits, uh, go through a round of redefinition of the use case for each and every stakeholder in this chain before at the end of this year, uh, host a conference related to regulation and standard to make sure that we identify uh, key regulation that might need to, uh, to be adapted to allow such a technology to work. And with this, uh, I'll leave up the floor for question. Uh, I, again, sorry for the long conversation and I, I wish I could be uh, physically with you, uh, but sometimes well, technology uh, gets the better of the best of us.
Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Nicola. Uh, thank you for the fantastic presentation and uh, thank you also for presenting uh, this amazing use case of uh, blockchain when enforcing uh, intellectual property rights. Uh, I would like to ask you just to stay online for a couple more minutes and uh, also like to ask Martin and uh, Mark to just step forward over here and uh, then we could uh, take some questions from uh, the audience. Don't be shy. Uh, Asgard, you just used the, the microphone. Uh, I will first say thank you for all your talks. Uh, it was very inform, uh, very informational, and uh, and I would also like to to maybe discuss a little bit of more uh, the legal regime, uh, both from this uh, U.S. perspective and also from a European perspective on both the current uh, uh, perspective on blockchain, also what will happen in the future. Can you uh, can you tell tell us a little bit more about that? Are you you can just say yes or you mean with respect to regulatory frameworks? Okay, uh, the the so I'll, I'll give you a quick answer. I don't know. Uh, uh, it's not my area of expertise at all. However, I won't let that stop me from giving you an opinion anyway. Uh, in, in the U.S. The regulatory framework is really focused on consumer protection. And, and the various agencies view themselves as doing just that, as protecting the consumer to make sure or try to make sure they don't get duped. So I think it's going to continue to move very slowly. Uh, most of these tokens are clearly considered securities under U.S. law and thus will be required to comply with all the various myriad of regulations uh, that are securities, and I don't think that's going to change. And I'll stop there because, again, I'm way out of my field of expertise here answering the question. Yeah, I'm also not an expert, but uh, obviously I have an opinion. Uh, so um, <laughs> what I've read in the newspaper, at least for the European side, is that um, it's it's also a little bit about consumer protection. It's also an ecological movement. So some people think that uh, the blockchain is a very harmful way uh, in order to uh, do computational uh, operations. Uh, and they think that um, especially the proof of work uh, solution is not viable uh, in the 21st century out of reasons, um, like basically because they're afraid that it will destroy the environment. That is one direction, and the other direction is anti-money laundering, because obviously, yeah, the Bitcoin uh, has been used a lot to do some shady business, and um, the regulators are trying to hack down on that. Yeah, maybe, maybe just a couple of, of uh, perspectives from a European regulatory 
um, point of view. The first would be that um, blockchain as a database is uh, n there. There are some some currents at the moment which is going to make blockchain use of data maybe easier. Uh, there is at the moment uh, a draft for a data act that allows the use of data that would otherwise be protected by um, by, data, by, by copyright law. Um, not personal data, but data that would come out of IoT devices and things like that, uh, that that would actually be available for use in uh, artificial intelligence. And to the extent that artificial intelligence uh, metadata and uh, databases will also be on the blockchain. There are some things that are actually going to be uh, leading to to make it easier from a regulatory perspective to to have blockchain solutions. And I, I think this this also should be viewed in the overall drive from the European Union to uh, make the European uh, digital economy more competitive by making data more usable for, for, for European companies. The other part I would mention would be something that uh, we just heard a little bit about in the last presentation, the, the European Blockchain Service Infrastructure, uh, the EPSI, uh, is an example of a EU-led project where there is hopefully some kind of an infrastructure from, for the new internet being developed. Uh, and a core part of that is that as it's led by the European Union, uh, it should be totally compliant with all European regulation. So that work, uh, which hopefully will have some kind of a Brussels effect or whatever it's called, uh, with, uh, if, it, if it actually becomes successful, will be a kind of a blockchain that uh, has by per definition to comply with not just uh, European regulation, but even European values. Uh, so um, it, th there is actually something happening in this space which makes it not that unthinkable that you can actually have this kind of technology being used in a way that actually complies with regulation. It has been covered by the by the previous speaker, but just very very quickly on, on this, uh, the the core item is data sharing and Internet of Value here, and whether or not we we use blockchain to uh, to ensure uh, uh, better and more reliable collaboration across the different uh, stakeholder parties, uh, th this this will protect at the end uh, all all business, and so the. We, on our side from UIPO, we want to make sure that we create this, this internet of value uh, from our little window, from intellectual uh, property standpoint. Um, but EPSI and other type of, uh, of initiative that are led at EU at level are, are going way uh, uh, further than this. Last month, uh, the, uh, the European Commission already unveiled uh, the idea of creating um, a, a digital uh, product passport, where uh, the, the core essence would be to, uh, to ensure uh, 
circular economy and recycling of subcomponents of products. And this would probably be run uh, as a blockchain service, perhaps. Perhaps at the end, once, once the, the testing is done, it will not be using blockchain. But the idea is here, is that we want to make things cleaner, faster, and more reliable. And we're just willing to contribute in, in this global picture, really. Maybe I can just add here that uh, this is probably also a good time to, 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 to just mention that a lot of these issues that we're discussing here do not necessarily need blockchain solutions. Uh, it, uh, a lot of these solutions that could be registered for different kind of uh, uh, data about products or things like that uh, could probably be kept by uh, a, a centralized database somewhere and you would not have all the problems about proof of work, uh, waste of electricity and things like that. So this is also an area where we might see a little bit of pushback uh, from also some of the EU projects that it might come to the realization that this is really a good idea, but we could also run smart contracts on a database that's uh, uh, run by an EU commission uh, designated office that it's actually has the trust of everybody. All right, I see there's another question, great. Uh, sure, can you hear me? Lovely. Uh, first of all, thank you for the presentations. They were really enlightening. Um, I have a question that's more specifically aimed at uh, Nicholas, and it's in regard to the use case. Uh, so, like, looking outside of the EU, we're kind of experiencing more of an entrenchment with the different dig digital markets, and having a blockchain solution for, like, tracking and tracing and verifying NFTs or digital twin assets is very efficient for the European market, but how are you looking towards the future when you have to interface with like different markets? Like piggybacking off of Mark Hoffman's uh, earlier comment about all the different patent offices, we're seeing a lot of innovation happening outside of Europe and not necessarily inside Europe. So expecting there to become, become like similar services, like how are you envisioning the future of the European market being like leading in that regard, like how will that interface in the future? If you have any thoughts on that. That's very wide. Um, I, I would I would say that uh, the, the the core success of our solution again, uh, I'm not I'm not envisaging something further than this. But at this stage, the solution. Uh, is going towards a proof of concept by the end of this year, uh, testing different uh, logistic uh, type of transport and crossing borders of different member states. Now we are very much aware that in a global scale, in a, in a globalized world, uh, many manufacturing sites are actually um, uh, hosted in third world country or at the other side of the world. And for, for that, you need to have everyone on board. So that means uh, when we talk with right holder about going further, testing the idea and implementing it in the, in, in the future, it is about making sure that we have all the customs on board, not just the, uh, the EU, but also uh, other other parties. The YPO, uh, so the World Intellectual Property Office, also has some ideas about uh, about 
setting up uh, some form of, uh, of a supply chain uh, anti-counterfeiting system. At the end of the day, what we will be doing is probably interconnect with what uh, the US will uh, set up and uh, China will set up and other part of the world will set up. The good thing about blockchain uh, and, and decentralization really is that you can connect the dots. So it's, it can evolve. Now, one key aspect that you mentioned is very important is the throughput. How much can we assume in terms of validation of, uh, of operation per second? second uh, and in the lights of millions of transactions per second happening across the world and, and, and product passing hands, how can we be sure that blockchain is able to, to cope with that? The recent developments are encouraging in terms of the different blockchain that are being used. Um, also letting the right holder choose their own blockchain or the track and trace provider using their own blockchain also allows to alleviate the weight than just choosing one blockchain and putting pressure on just one system and one protocol. Uh, so throughput uh, may not be as big of an issue, at least not in the first time uh, than, we, than we foresaw. One point also that is important to, to mention, um, the blockchain solution that uh, would be used by this type of system for the supply chain will likely not work on proof of work. So because the for many re different reasons, really, but uh, so that's an, an entirely open conversation we could have. But um, essentially, we're, dri we're driven now in blockchain with a different type of uh, protocols or proof of authorities where uh, the, the, the core essence is just to, uh, to ensure that Whoever claims uh, uh, right and claims uh, an asset is the person or the organization uh, that is truly having the, the asset or, or being truly the organization in the sea. So proof of authority is definitely the, the way forward. Uh, we've mentioned different type of, um, of, uh, of system and databases that are used. Uh, there is also a clear, clearly a way forward uh, to this. So there are challenges, we know them. Uh, it's about stakeholders, it's about technologies, but we think it can be overcome by collaboration. Um, another question, yes. I think uh, this will probably be the last one uh, since uh, we're already a little bit late. Yeah, uh, all right, this is a question for Nicola. Um, I was wondering uh, yeah, regarding block blockchain and anti-counterfeiting. Uh, My question is about uh, connecting the physical product with the digital version, the NFT, and you're saying that sort of all different uh, technology, uh, IoT tech is, is useful and the barcode, etc. But how do you uh, sort of avoid that the fraud just happens at this step and sort of ruins all the advantages of the blockchain technology if, if if the fraud happens at the, the step where the connection from the physical to the digital um, version is. Yeah, what are your thoughts on, on this? And, and thank you for the presentations as well. Yeah. Um, can, can you rephrase the question just so I'm clear because this on the second part, I wasn't sure exactly what you meant for the uh, IoT devices. A question, um, you're talking about using blockchain to against uh, counterfeiting. Um, so couldn't there be an issue um, in, the, uh, in the phase of connecting the physical product with the digital version and the fraud happening here? 
um, by people making yeah uh, different barcodes or whatever, and that's sort of ruining the advantages of the blockchain. Mm. Yeah, that's that's a very good question. Uh, actually, the, it, it it wouldn't really need to be me to answer to that. But one of the core use case uh, of uh, so each stakeholder in this chain has its own use case and its own needs. The right holders sometimes they do have manufacturer that they over which they have control, and sometimes they don't. It's not a, it's a known fact that in some cases uh, they are what we call night shift, in which uh, some manufacturer uh, would create a product that would be seen otherwise as authentic but are being sold on the black market uh, this is what we call overproduction now the good thing about uh, about a system like this with the with the blockchain is that the right holder uh, and literally the right holder not the brand owner the right holder the person who claims the right uh, would have the capability to to limit the number of uh, metadata package and, and subsequently nfts that would be created so imagine tomorrow you have to create a batch of 200 pairs of shoes well the right holder will give you 200 tokens or maybe 200 tokens that will be applied on the shoes and then perhaps 10 tokens for creating a batch and then one token for creating a container and so by doing so uh the iot device we talk are literally uh, scanning a QR code or, or RFID. Uh, so they use their own production line system and they just digitally enable them uh, to be linked to the identity uh, register. Uh, so so to, 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 I hope that that answers your, your question, but the, the, the idea was to say IoT device production line uh, will use the, the IoT device they want. Uh, they are cheap IoT devices that can be used also for SMEs uh, to create uh, to to get on board this solution. We we consider the so the overall solution cheap uh, to adopt, and B uh, it also allows from the get go because we validate the person who creates the NFT to control the flow of NFT. Now of course we can't claim to to chase fake NFT on NFT platforms, but that's not really what the the solution is about. All right. Thank you very much, Nicola. Uh, thank you for joining. Oh, you want to say something? Sorry. Uh, I think your, your question is very good. It relates uh, to all these situations where you have a blockchain that's immutable in itself, but there is the link to meat space or to the physical space. Uh, and I think uh, some of the use cases that were touted in the beginning, for instance, having a a land register in Africa or something like that, where it would be very, very difficult to understand whether that land was actually there or owned by that person who had it recorded uh, on the blockchain was almost insurmountable. But uh, these kind of blockchains, and I'm, I'm obviously not an expert on, on Nicholas blockchain here, but, but these kind of blockchains, they at least have the advantage that in order to write to them that you have to have some kind of agreement and vetting before you can do that. Uh, just uh, when uh, when you put in the original information and create the link to the physical th stuff, but also the other added metadata along the, the along the way that also has some some significance or some shows something that has been happening in the physical world. Then at least there is some restrictions, uh, an agreement that will have to be signed by those who got access to get access to to write to the blockchain that you can hold them accountable to 
and uh, of course, I mean, it's not uh, the almighty Lord that is enforcing this. Uh, there will have to be courts and lawyers and things like that, but that's the, the thing that's already in place in, in, in other systems as well. So, so I think the, your, 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 the challenge that you're bringing up is very relevant. It will kill a lot of these utopian blockchains, uh, but in this case, there is actually, it seems that there is actually ample way to actually through bureaucracy, through uh, agreements to actually hold those accountable that are writing to the blockchain. Okay, thank you also for the answer. Uh, I will have to, <laughs> I will have to close down the discussion now. Thank you, Nicola, for joining from Alicante. Thank you too for coming around. Uh, thank all of you for being here and all of those uh, joining online. Uh, for those who are here today, they get a special treat uh, that those who are not here today don't get. Namely, we are invited to uh, the bar around the corner where Martin uh, has invited us for drinks uh, tonight, basically. Uh, yeah, and, uh, <laughs> uh, and I look forward to seeing you all next year to the second annual uh, conference on uh, blockchain and IP law.